Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 through uh, 21. I said 31. That's a lot. <laughs> 10 through 21. This morning I'll be reading this portion of the text. I usually read out of the ESV. I'm going to read this out of the NLT. Um, just uh, pulls out some vibrancy in what, uh, what Paul is saying, I think. Uh, I'll also have it, at, sometimes put the scriptures when I'm reading them and throughout on the screen. That's in case you don't have a Bible, uh, you can read along and follow along if you want. Uh, if you want. But if you do have a Bible, um, don't read it on the screen. I want you to be able to read what I'm reading in the scriptures itself, uh, knowing that we're all called to be, as we see in Acts, we're called to be Bereans that are examining the scriptures for ourselves, knowing also that I'm just some punk kid who's trying his best to to teach the scriptures, and I'll get it wrong sometimes. Uh, So there's a beautiful thing about the collective body of Christ and the spirit in all of us, we get to see what God says himself, not secondhand, uh, through another person. Uh, so love if you just follow along with me in the scriptures as well uh, and allow the Holy Spirit to interact with you uh, as we read it. But I'm going to read in the New Living Translation, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 through 21. I'll go all the way through. I'll pray and then we'll get started. I want you to know Christ. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. And if you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, I say it again with tears in my eyes, and there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. This is God's holy word. Lord, we pray that even as you moved upon people to 
pen scripture by your Holy Spirit, you would move upon our hearts to receive it. And in receiving it, we pray that we would be changed by it for the better. That a year from now, we'll be able to look back on this moment and moments in between and say, I'm not perfect and I haven't attained perfection yet. But God's got my back and he's moving me towards the finish line. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you're uh, just joining us today, or maybe you've missed a, a few Sundays, I'll just give you a re- uh, enough information to know kind of where we're at right now and what Paul is doing. Uh, essentially, this, the, the idea here is that God's kingdom, this is what we've been uncovering for, uh, for many weeks, God's kingdom is available to anybody. It's available to anybody through, not through our faultless observance of religious rules, but the kingdom of God is available to anybody simply by trusting in Jesus, in his life, in his death, his resurrection, in what he said, all of those things. It's simply by grace. But upon being brought into God's kingdom, we are brought into a personally interactive relationship with God that changes everything about us. It transforms us from the inside out. And what we're about to look at in this text, I think, is basically Paul telling people who by faith have been brought into a personally interactive with Jesus, uh, relationship with Jesus, he's telling them, here's what lies ahead for you. Here's what's, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you have to look forward to. Here's some bumps in the road too, but here's what ultimately is going to carry you through. That seems to be uh, essentially what he's, he's saying in these 10 or 11 verses ahead of us. I think of the story of the famous inventor Thomas Edison, uh, who was not only known for his inventions, but just ways of thinking, ways about uh, creating uh, household items better or how to do politics better. This is just how his mind was geared, how to make things better. Well, one of the, uh, his probably, arguably, his most famous invention was the light bulb. Uh, and it was said of him, uh, that he purported, it purportedly took him about a thousand tries before he actually got a successful prototype. And the story goes, it's alleged that a reporter asked him, well, how, uh, Thomas, how does it feel to fail a thousand times? To which uh, Edison responded, I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention with a thousand steps. And if you can understand that, that way of thinking of things This seems to be the idea that Paul has about the Christian life. You might have come into this building thinking only of the amount of times that you have messed up this week. Maybe you're even at that point where you've said, I have messed up a thousand times. This guy keeps preaching about transformation. I only know about, uh, about messing up and I only know about just you know, stumbling and all of this stuff. And maybe you're, you're saying that to yourself. I, I see that other people are being transformed, but I feel like I have messed up a thousand times. It seems that in the verses ahead, Paul is saying to people like you and to me, you haven't met, you're not a product of a thousand mistakes. You're an invention that's requiring a thousand steps. God is in the process of transforming you. You're an invention that requires a thousand steps. This is a process involved. 
And he starts by, you know, by giving us a few things. He, he tells us there's a goal. You know, even someone like Thomas Edison, you can imagine, on his 959th try, he's still pressing on. He's still enduring because his goal far exceeds uh, the experiences and the difficulties and the disappointments that he's hitting along the way. He wants a light bulb. He dreams of the opportunities uh, and the experiences that might come out of an invention like this, and it's what drives him. Paul similarly gives Christians a goal, and he speaks about it in a personal sense. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. I'll do, I'll do anything. I want to know Jesus Christ. I'm willing. We saw this in the texts in the uh, preceding weeks. I'm willing to lose anything. I'm willing to give up anything. I'm willing to deny myself anything just to know Jesus more. That is so goal-worthy, that is so worthwhile, that is so valuable to me. I've gotten a taste of it, and I want more of that taste. I'm willing to do anything to know Christ. And in, that, uh, in verse 10 and 11, if you're asking yourself, what does it mean for Paul to know Christ? What does it mean for me to know Christ? Paul begins to unpack his definition. He says in verse 10, I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. What does it mean for Paul or for you and I to know Jesus? Nothing less than life-giving power. Nothing less than the powerful presence of Jesus abiding in our lives. And then he says right after that, because you know, in, in our culture, we have a particular view of power. We are self-assertive, we bully, we push people around, uh, we assert ourselves in order to gain more power and control over other people. But what we see in the story of Jesus is that true power, remember this, comes from uh, uh, self-denial for the sake of love. It's a different kind of power than we see on display in the world. And so that's why Paul seems to say, I want to know Christ to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead to suffer with him sharing in his death. This is a particular type of power, an unearthly power that comes through a counterintuitive way, through self-denial and through love. And then he rounds all of that up by saying, in order that, here's the goal, I may experience the resurrection from the dead. So it seems that what Paul is speaking about here is a journey of love a journey of love with Jesus towards wholeness and completeness. He's saying, I, I want to know Christ, and what that looks like for me is life-giving power through self-denial for love's sake until I am brought to completion, until where that's, that's all I know. That's the goal. If I can get to that place, I think I will be happy and whole and complete in the way that I was meant to be. And he posits that as something for all Christians, uh, the goal here, then, is, is completion, is being made perfect, or uh, uh, being made mature, being gr- uh, growing into maturity, or uh, another way of putting it is to be fully human. God made you with a design and an intent in mind, and he is bringing you to the fulfillment of his heart, the fulfillment of his dreams for your life. But that comes through, what Paul keeps keeps. Uh, echoing here is that comes through entering into the story of Jesus. 
Jesus first enters into our lives, and then we enter into his story. It's almost like we're reenacting the story of Jesus that we saw in chapter two that we're memorizing together. Reenacting the story. It's by taking on Jesus' life, abiding in his life, but also mimicking him, listening to his words, valuing the things that he values, uh, uh, staying uh, 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 not uh, valuing the things that he, he doesn't like, you know, taking on that, the person and the work of Jesus Christ as something that forms us from the inside out. Well, then Paul does this, because at this point, you may be saying to yourself, this sounds very romantic and, since, uh, and beautiful, but I, I, I just am not there yet. And Paul says to, to people like that, Maybe to all of us, unless you're perfect. He says to, to people here in, in Santa Barbara, uh, to the Philippian church, to everybody listening, he would say, hey, don't worry, I'm not there yet either. Specifically, he says in verse 12, I, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. I love this. Because in one single line, he, he protects us from falling to two equal but opposite sides. When we're thinking about transformation, we're thinking of becoming more like Jesus, there's two, but, uh, two equal but opposite errors we can fall in. One is self-righteousness, right? We can grow and we can mature and we can start growing in, in areas of Christ. Maybe we're starting to realize that we're becoming more humble and we recognize our own humility. And then uh, by recognizing our own humility, we become less humble than we were, but we're fooling ourselves, so we're, we're becoming self-righteous. We're like, I have arrived. I am, I am the most, I'm, I'm pretty humble, you know? I wasn't humble last year, but I'm pretty humble now. Somebody should call out that I'm humble so that I don't have to do it myself because I'm humble, you know? And so in this roundabout way, we fall into the self-righteousness on this other side. There's a danger and Paul guards against that danger, right, by saying, hey, we've never arrived until we see Jesus face to face. That means there's always room for, for maturing. There's always room for more of Jesus in our lives. There's always room for depth. We have not yet gone deep enough. And that's also something for, for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for decades. Paul is saying, hey, you have not arrived. I don't care if you're 89 years old, you've been walking with Jesus since you were two seconds old. Paul is saying, there's more for you. There's more depth for you. There's more that God wants to uncover in your life. Don't stop. And yet, on the other end of that spectrum, right, if, if on one end of the spectrum is self-righteousness, a sense of pride, I've, I've arrived, the other end would be maybe shame. Gosh, this is hard. I feel like I'm, I'm worse of a Christian than I was, you know, a month ago. I got saved, you know, two years ago, but now, you know, and I was passionate and all of that stuff, but now it's like I'm getting just burdened by the process of it all. Life is heavy. I'm despairing. I don't feel victorious, and so we can fall into that, that realm of shame and beat ourselves over the head, and I think Paul lovingly protects against that as well. He says, hey, it's a process, it's a process, and I haven't achieved, achieved it yet uh, either, and yet there's more. And instead of either beating those who are shamed over the head by saying, hey, try harder, 
And instead of applauding those who are self-righteous by saying, you are the most humble people in the world, he instead, said, he instead gives us something that I think helps navigate that tension. The tension that we know we're supposed to be like Christ, and yet we're not there yet. There's a tension there. Paul navigates that tension with a few things. From verse 12 through 16, it sounds like, bear with me, it sounds like what he's saying, if I can paraphrase it like this, and then I'll, I'll point it out. He's saying, hey, we can navigate the tension in life because we have the divine life of Christ in us. And that divine life of Christ in us gives us the freedom to let go of the past and to move forward with excitement into the future. We have the divine life of Jesus in us that frees us from entanglement in the past in order to step into what God has us for the future. Here's where I'm getting that. Uh, In verse 12, he says, even after all of that, I don't mean to say I've achieved maturity or perfection, but, verse 12, but I press on to make it my own. I love that line. I have not achieved perfection, but I am pressing on to make it mine. And look at how he grounds that entire sentence. He says, because Christ Jesus, and I'm reading uh, this line out of the ESV. I love how it puts it in the ESV. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I am making what Jesus has for me my own because Jesus has made me his own. I have been, as the NLT says, I have been possessed by Jesus. And so I am going to possess all that belongs to Jesus for myself. You see where Paul's motivation is grounded? It's grounded in the love of the Father towards him in Jesus. Everything about him comes from the sense of, I know God and God knows me and uh, is pouring out his love for me. I I, I just want more. And so if that means self-denial, fine, I'll deny anything inside of me. Just if I could get more of Jesus. If it means uh, uh, reading the scriptures to get more of Jesus, I'll do that too. If it means uh, whatever it means, I just want more of Christ in my life. And then he says, I focus on this one thing. So here's where the freedom the freedom comes in from, from Christ in us, remembering that we're not being uh, told how to live a religious life by God from afar, but God actually invades our hearts, changes us from the inside out. And as Paul said in chapter two, he's working in us to work and to will for his good pleasure. How does he do that? Well, it seems like he gives us a lot of freedom, a lot of supernatural liberation. And one of the ways that he does that is to free us from entanglement to our past. He says, I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, verse 13. Perhaps there's some of you in this room who can't even think about tomorrow because you are thinking so much about yesterday. You are so burdened by shame and guilt and remorse you have made mistake after mistake. You think of Thomas Edison making a thousand, you're like, that's small, man. I've made 10,000. My life is one mistake after the other. The mistakes blur together. I can't even get up in the morning to think about uh, doing something proactive because I, I feel like such a failure. And Paul says, being in Christ liberates you from that. It liberates you from being in bondage to your mistakes. Not just the ones in the past, but the ones in the present and the ones in the future. Now here's the deal. Here's what the gospel of Jesus does to people like you and me. 
It means that you might, you know, and our mistakes are real, and perhaps there's consequences to them. And the truth of the matter is, you might be, uh, you know, those mistakes in your past might explain you, but the gospel says they do not no longer have to define you. Your past might explain who you are today, but your past does not have to define you. You are now defined by your relationship to Jesus Christ, who, when the Father looks at you, sees you through Jesus Christ and says, you are loved. You are perfect in my sight. You are valuable. You're the best thing ever, and I want you riding shotgun with me in this thing called my kingdom, and I want to do stuff with you, and it's going to be awesome. That's your father. That's your father, and your father doesn't, doesn't care what other people around you say about you. Your father in heaven doesn't care what other people have done, uh, what, what they have said in order to tear you down. Your father has something different to say about you. And right now, Paul seems to be saying, hey, let's focus on this one thing. Let's forget about the past and press forward to what our Father, what Christ, the Son, says about us. And look at this. We're not just to let go of the past, forgetting the past, but we're to look forward to what lies ahead, verse 14. This is where we get the name of our series title, What Lies Ahead. He says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize. This is what you have been liberated to do. This is not so much a, you know, you've been forgiven of your sins, so now hang out in the corner and try not to break anything, thus saith the Lord, and just chill until I come back, and then we'll have a party. This is, I... Your life right now is to be spent in exuberant anticipation of what God has for you. Yes, it will be completed when Christ comes back, but you can get glimpses of that right now. You are meant to get glimpses of that right now. Look forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize. This is for you what was for Thomas Edison, the light bulb. Paul is saying, hey, I press on. I don't need to be dictated by my past or even by my present mistakes. I am pressing on through all 1,000 of my mistakes in order to get a hold of what Christ has already gotten a hold of for me. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Just like Edison, to further that analogy, would see, even after the 900th mistake, I know I am going to get something killer out of this. And for the first time in my life, I'm going to be able to read at 10 o'clock at night. (laughs) Bless God. And after the 900th mistake, I see something. It's going to happen. I see a literal light at the end of the tunnel. So Paul is saying to Christians, there is a light. But that light doesn't have to be experienced at the end of the ages. It's breaking forth into the present right now. And it is that heavenly prize that we are looking forward to and even pursuing right now. Now, what is the heavenly prize? I guess it depends on what heaven is. And your answer to what is heaven will probably largely inform how you spend your present life. When I grew up, I always thought of heaven as some type of destination, you know, and it it could be argued that way as well. 
but it was a particular type of destination. You know, as a kid, I thought heaven, I think it was too many Looney Tunes or whatever, but heaven was like clouds, and I was floating on the clouds. I was wearing bright white, playing a harp. You know, that was my caricature as a kid. Now, as I matured, that caricature developed into a more more mature version of heaven. It wasn't a cloud and a heart, but I was more like at a country club, just hanging out, sipping Arnold Palmer's because heaven, you know, like the rules in heaven and stuff. And so I'm, you know, sipping Arnold Palmer's, uh, laying out at a, uh, you know, at a country club, which is heaven, uh, but there's no fun, you know, I'm just kind of hanging out, and every 30 minutes we break out into a camp song or something like that. And, like, that was my mature version of heaven. It's like somewhere we go when we die, uh, but right now, who knows what happens. And even when we get there, it wasn't a very compelling vision uh, to really drive my life. Uh, when I began seeing, like, I hope you guys do this too, uh, uh, men and women, do this, look at what Jesus, how Jesus describes heaven, um, and it doesn't really have that flavor of a country club. You look at the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, and Jesus in, in the, uh, the prayer that he tells us to pray seems to describe heaven, 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 heaven as God's presence and his will actually occurring. And so you could, describe, uh, you could think of heaven as God's will being done. Well, if that's the case, um, that could mean that we get tastes of heaven right now. And even Jesus tells us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in Revelation 21, we're actually told not that we're going to a destination like we're going to heaven, but that actually heaven is coming down upon us, and that's when completion will happen. God's will will crash into the earth. And as the prophet Habakkuk says, there will come a time where the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea. Uh, what, how much of the sea do the waters cover? It doesn't even make sense. It's like all, everything, submersion. And so we're getting this picture. It looks like that heaven is not so much a destination, although it could be argued that it is that, as much as it is God's presence and will being done in places. Amen. What does that mean for you right now? Well, it means a few things. The good news, then, is not merely we're forgiven and we're just kind of hanging tight until we go to a place. If that's the gospel in its entirety, then there's not a whole lot of implications for our life right now except to wait until we die. But the good, good news is, according to Jesus' own prayer life, is that God's rule and reign, heaven, are breaking into the present, into your lives and into my life right now. When Jesus came in on the scene in Matthew chapter four, he said, repent, or that word literally means change the way that you think. Change the way that you think. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Do you hear that? Heaven is near to you. In what way is it near to you? Well, Jesus goes on to display all sorts of works and talk about all sorts of things, and you can just have a ball with that. I don't have time to uh, go through the Sermon on the Mount word for word right now, but I would love to. But the kingdom of heaven, heaven is near to you, and there will, yes, one uh, one day be a time 
where heaven is completely submerged in everything that you and I are. But the good news is, it's come near to us. This has huge implications for you and me and how we live our lives right now. And too many Christians perhaps live boring Christian lives because they think that God is just busy trying to get people into heaven when in reality God is trying to get heaven into people. And Christianity is not so much a destination religion as it is a transformation religion. It will change everything about how you live and breathe to think about how heaven has, is touching your life now as opposed to what it will be one day. The gospel isn't so much that God is trying to get people into heaven when they die. It's that God is trying to get heaven into people while they are alive. What does that do for you today? How does that change the way you approach your marriage, your singleness? How does that change the way that you approach your job? How does that change the way you approach your suffering? How does that change the way you play basketball? How does that change the way that you eat raw fish in a sushi parlor? How does that change literally everything about the way that we live and act? Heaven comes down. It's not completely here yet, but it is creeping into your business. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And it comes to us through this guy, Jesus Christ. The heavenly prize then, if we think of it that way, and I could be wrong, read Jesus for yourself, but if we think of it that way, the heavenly prize is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's complete transformation and wholeness in Jesus. So read that again. When Paul says, oh man, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. I just have this picture, this image of Paul. Not there yet, but he's reaching forward to something that belongs to him. And yet at the same time, that something that belongs to him is creeping into the past from the future to meet him. There's just like this insatiable desire for the two to become one. The extravagance of God's love. The people in the present longing to be complete. And yet in a very real way, it seems that heaven is almost reaching back for us as well. So it doesn't mean hang on until you die and then you'll get to heaven. It means heaven is already conforming you to Christ. So pursue what the spirit in you already wants to do. Every heavenly resource in the sky is bent on making you like Jesus. Our calling is to simply participate in what God is already wanting to do in and around you. And he goes on to say in verse 15, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. Uh, this, is a, this is a hard one for me. I don't know what he's talking about here. But I think, I'll just throw this out there, talk amongst yourselves. But when he says, if you, if you disagree on some point, it seems like he's speaking about spiritual maturity. I'm not, there, I'm not there yet, but God is bringing me there. If any of you disagree on some point, in other words, I, maybe he's saying anything less than what Paul or what I'm presenting about the Christian life. If you settle for less. Um, 
or if you disagree on the process, whatever it is, I think God will graciously give you what you need to know. Uh, I, it almost seems like a merciful, gracious part, uh, uh, side of Paul. He's like, hey, there's something big happening in our lives right now. There's something big happening in our church family. If you uh, screw up the details on the, on the way, whatever, dude. <laughs> you know, Paul, God, will, God will iron it out as you go, as you go on. Um, but, and then he says, I love how he says this at the end. He says, but we must hold on to the progress we have already made. So we don't let go of all of our past. Paul says, let go of the stuff that's entangling you. It seems like. He's saying, hey, hang on to those moments that God has been faithful. Because those are fun. That's fun to get around a, a dinner table with, with, with people of like mind. Pop open some drinks, eat some burgers or some steak or some quinoa or whatever, you know, Kale, salad, smoothies. Just trying to be relevant. Yeah. <laughs> and to look at your past. But not to look at your past to say, I, I am terrible at life. And to, dis- and to be discouraged, but to look at, at how far you have come. Not how far you have not come, but to, to be like, yeah, a year ago, I used to cuss at everybody in the church parking lot, and I don't do that. I, I only do half as much of that as I used to. <laughs> Praise God. I mean, right? It seems like Paul is saying, hey, don't, don't, don't be obsessed with the, the mess-ups in your life. This is going to happen. It's a work in process. Certainly don't be obsessed with other people's mess-ups. Don't, don't judge other people. Just be people who rejoice over how much God has been faithful to broken people. He is making us whole. He is making us whole. And for one person, it might be a 1,000 miles an hour. And for another person, you might feel like, oh, I'm only cussed, I only said 20 cuss words today. You know, I'm still a drunkard and a mess up and a, uh, I'm sexually provocative. I do everything that I've been told not to do, but I'm doing a little, little less today. And you know what is even far more important than that? I love Jesus a little more than I used to. And I am experiencing the Father's love. And I didn't even know that was real. Nobody's ever loved me in this life this way before and I just know a little bit about it. If you can say stuff like that, then don't sweat the small stuff. You're winning and God is bringing you to the finish line. Now, Paul says, hey, hold on to the progress you've already made. Forget the past, the mistakes. Those don't define you anymore. Only look back on your past to see how God has been faithful, how you have grown and hang on to that progress. In other words, don't stay there. Be hungry for more. Whatever that looks like for you, count your wins, look how far you've come, hang on to the progress, and move forward. Because of Jesus, you can forget the past, the things that hold you down, at least, that element of the past. You can press into the future, and you can remember just how far you've come and see, yes, God has been faithful to me. This has not been because of my hard work. This has not been because I am such a great religious person. It's because of God's extravagant love for me. I can owe it all to him. And because that person is behind me, I'm gonna try again on Monday. I'm gonna step into God's plan for my life on Monday. And I won't attain perfection on Monday, and that's okay. I have already attained Christ, and Christ has possessed me. Is that enough for you? 
Paul says, it's enough for me. Is that enough for you? Paul goes, branches off into another couple places after that where he speaks about the importance of being in community. He says, um, in other words, not just doing this by yourself, but being with people who are also doing the same types of things as you. It's always very helpful, you know, to hang out with people who have similar interests. We should always have, you know, it's good to have that. Um, people who are like us. But Paul also speaks about the, the beauty of being around people who are also trying to reenact the story of Jesus and how encouraging that is uh, when it becomes hard. And we see this all throughout Philippians, that reenactment being handed down. We see it, first of all, in Jesus. It's that passage we're endeavoring to, to memorize, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not count those privileges, that power as something to be hung on to for his own benefit. But he emptied himself of the privileges and stepped down into a lowly place to love people. And then on and on and so forth. And then after that, we see Paul in chapter 3, verse 5 through 11, reenacting the same thing that he sees in Jesus. I used to be self-righteous. I used to have so much going for me but I consider it all a loss in order to gain Christ, that I may be found in him. There's that emptying of himself, that self-denial in order to gain true life and freedom in Jesus. And then what Paul reenacts, he then hands to us in verse 17, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Christian community is reenacting the story of Jesus and handing it on to others and gathering around the dinner table and in people's living rooms and outside and running around, going to the beach and all the while, just in little ways, just practically living out the love and uh, 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 the lordship of Jesus Christ as it touches our lives, experiencing the taste of heaven as we go. As he does this, he brings up difficult company. Uh, he says there, there are people, I'm assuming that you, you don't, only want to be around. He says their God is their appetite, verse 19. Uh, they brag about shameful things. They think only about this life here on earth, verse 19. Verse 18, he, he says these people, there's strong language here. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ and they are headed for destruction. I want you to think about that for a second. The type of person who their God is their appetite, their cravings, who brag about that and only think about their life on earth. This is kind of, this picture that's being set up is their God is themselves. And that not only drives them, but Paul says that, uh, that leads them towards destruction. Jesus said a similar thing when he said, if you try to hang on to your life, you're actually gonna lose it. It's a counterintuitive kingdom principle, uh, kingdom economics. You try to, uh, you try to put yourself first, you try to keep your life, you end up losing it. But for those who lose their lives, deny their rights in order to gain Christ, they actually win everything. So Paul seems to be saying a, uh, showing a similar thing. For those whose God is themselves, they're actually destroying their soul from the inside out. C.S. Lewis described... Um, this in this way in his book, The Great Divorce. I love this. He said, there, there are really two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. In other words, our hell isn't something necessarily imposed upon us by uh, some angry, cruel, torturous God as much as it is something that we do to ourselves and it becomes the judgment that God puts us in. We tear our souls apart by becoming our own gods. We were not made to live for ourselves. As you see in the book of Romans chapter one, we were made to live for someone greater and more transcendent to us and it's in uh, abiding in that life outside of our own that we actually find true freedom and true life. Now, this isn't a call here to turn into a secluded Christian subculture, right? Paul isn't saying, hey, just hang out with Christians and nobody else. What Paul seems to be emphasizing is reenacting the the Jesus life in the midst of a world that needs to hear a different way to live. Those who are craving earthly things, those who are driven by their own appetites, need to see people who are free. They need to see people who can say, I am hungry and I have been satisfied. Who have tasted in reality what Jesus would say, anybody who is thirsty, they can come to me and those who believe in me, out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Your neighbors and your friends, and your family, and your coworkers need to see people, not to be told by a preacher, but to see people who are experiencing living water. As Paul says, perhaps some of them will ask you, how in the world are you living through suffering? And to give an answer for the hope that you have that's within you. And at that point, you can share with them, but they need to see people who are drinking deeply of heaven and of Jesus Christ. And so we reenact this gospel in community with other storytellers. We become a community of storytellers. What story are we telling? Jesus had it all, emptied himself, came down to our level, served even the worst of us, loved better than anyone's ever been loved before, and out of that became exalted to the right hand of the Father as we'll see in the verses that we're memorizing uh, in the weeks to come. Lastly, Paul rounds all of this up, verse 17 through 19, and he says, here's why, you know, as you're reaching for the goal through the tension of not attaining it yet, even though there's gonna be bumps in the road, here's how you can get through that goal as a community, is through the assurance that you have the assurance that you have, and he gives us that in in the last remaining verses, it's essentially the return of the Lord. The Lord is returning. He says there's coming a point where Jesus Christ will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, verse 21. God is completing, will complete that work that he started in you, chapter one, verse 16. God started it, he's working in you to work and to will right now, and he will bring it to completion at the end. God, by grace, it's all by grace. He just calls us to participate in this wonderful work that he's doing. 
And he is in the business of reconciling everything in this world and on this earth to himself. And he can and he will bring all of, uh, all of the above into existence. And he says, by using the same power, in verse 21, by using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Jesus doesn't just die for the sins of humanity. He certainly does that. But he is also in the business of bringing everything into obedience to his name. Bringing the nations to obedience to him. Bringing everything under his control. Every injustice, every act of sorrow, every shame, every act of guilt, every form of sin. He is in the process of beautifying, recreating, and bringing it, uh, restoring it to what it was supposed to be in subjection and under his control. Heaven breaking out now looks like individual people in communities one at a time brought under the control of a good and beautiful king. If you can uh, understand that, then this last line will make all the sense in the world. Paul says, there's people who are driven by their cravings and all they can think about is earthly things and what's ahead of them. But, verse 20, but we are citizens of heaven. We don't belong here. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. That means your true citizenship is not as a Santa Barbaran or a Ilavistan or a Manasidian. <laughs> your truest identity is not, uh, is not Westmont or UCSB. It's not your sexual identity. It's not your singleness. It's certainly not your past. Your truest allegiance and identity is not in town and country. It's not to a political party. It's not to an ethnicity. It's not even to your biological family. When Jesus breaks in on the present, he changes everything. He gives you everything, but he also asks for everything in return. And the people who by faith desire to follow Jesus are those who say, you can have it all even my allegiance. Our allegiance then is to Jesus as the true king and we are citizens of heavenly, uh, a heavenly country. That's where the word church comes from. The, the word ecclesia means uh, it's been convoluted with all sorts of images and uh, other ideas in our day and age, but it, it originally meant a called out people. I love that because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, their name came from a word meaning the separate people. They're separate from all those other dirty people. We're the called out people. We have not left the people. We're just distinct. We have a different quality of life or we're called to that. And we're called to be immersed in the world here in Santa Barbara living a completely different way of life. To live differently and to love so well. To reenact the story of Jesus together in Philippians chapter two. I'm going to ask uh, Cody and the others to come up, Joy and Sam, as we continue to, to sing together. Let's stop right there. And uh, 
If you feel right now that you are burdened or enslaved to something from your past, um, I'm going to pray for you right now. There's also, as we worship, there will be prayer teams to the left and to the right and upstairs. See with the lanyards as well. But right now, I want you to think about some of those things. What are the things that have entangled you to move forward? I want you to just, in, in the stillness right now, just begin to imagine this crazy vision that Paul has as, as Jesus is speaking through him. And what, what you are destined for. I want you to think right now about those areas in your life where you are being held back by guilt and shame, maybe legalism, maybe a sense of trying to do all the right things and failing miserably, or whatever it is that's paralyzing you or burdening you. And I want you to think right now of the words that Jesus gave to us. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Is that you? Could you describe yourself right now as weary and heavy laden, tired, oppressed? You've come to the right person. It's not me. It's Jesus. And I want you to hear him saying these words to you personally. As though he's right there, wherever you are, speaking to you personally, saying, come to me. and I will give you rest. And my way of life will be easy for you. I want you to just, as we sing, allow the words of the radical claim of Jesus to begin to form how you think. Heavenly Father, may these things be done to us according to your word and not mine. And if I have in any way... uh, not represented your word rightly, I pray. That, uh, even as Paul says, I believe God will make those points known to you. I pray that you would also make us forget anything that's wrong. And may the Holy Spirit breathe through this body today and give us Jesus in whom are all the riches of heaven treasures of wisdom and knowledge and everything good that we see in the Father. May we experience that personally and corporately as the Holy Spirit moves. Pray this in Jesus' name.